Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. And remember, if you want to listen live, download the iHeartRadio app, download the TuneIn app, and just search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network, and you can listen to this program live. Also, if you want to watch the video of this podcast, check us out on YouTube, on Twitch, or on Periscope, and type in, you guessed it, Fantasy Sports Network. You'll find us there. Enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to Going for the Green on the Fantasy Sports Network. I'm Mike Leone of DailyRoto.com. Joining me also from DailyRoto.com are Drew Dinkmeyer and Colin Drew for this week's show. A special show because we've got the U.S. Open, uh, the second major of the season. So that's very exciting. If you're listening to us and you're enjoying the content here, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. We're also available on Audio Boom, in addition, of course, to the Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Before we get into the analysis of the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills, Let's go over some promos we've got running at DailyRoto.com in case you're interested in some content for betting, for daily fantasy sports on DraftKings or FanDuel. I'll throw it over to Colin, who does most of our marketing for us on Daily Roto. Yeah, we got a 20% off code running this week for Father's Day. Uh, Obviously a special one for me, my first uh, Father's Day as a dad, so that'll be very exciting. But for all of you guys who are either dads who have dads you want to share the code with or who are trying to avoid becoming a dad. We've got a 20% off code running this week. MLB, golf, you name it. You can save 20% at dailyrunner.com slash premium with the promo dad. So definitely a good week for it. I know the U.S. Open uh, is going to be a really fun event. And obviously this podcast bringing out the, the three-man pod. So should be a good one. Yeah, not holding anything back. And uh, DJ is the favorite to win at the U.S. Open. He's coming off a win at the FedEx St. Jude Classic. He ran away with it, had the walk-off hole-out eagle on the 18th hole in the final round. And it's kind of crazy that he's the same price this week and could be even higher owned despite a much, much deeper field. And I don't know how much of that is due to people not playing him enough last week because they were worried about you know his motivation to win, uh, just given a week before the U.S. Open, how much of it is that the ownership is expected to be boosted this week because he won last week. But it is interesting to see that uh, initially we're projecting him to be even higher owned this week. And it was a pretty good week for Daily Roto golf subscribers. And I know, Colin, you won a seat to the Thunderdome for this week, which is really exciting. We'll be sweating that together live. The three of us will be at Ocean City, Maryland for a little getaway while the U.S. US Open's going on. But uh, UFB ball had a 25K score. Uh, that makes it the second in two weeks in terms of second-place finish in the dogleg for DR. Philly Dilly won 50K the week before. So uh, really exciting. Drew, you had a T10 in the dogleg. So, guys, it was a pretty good week. I didn't play that much last week, so I'm feeling a little bit left out. Yeah, it was a fun week to have a lot of Dustin Johnson, which is basically what our projections were saying last week, that he was a little bit underpriced given the field strength. Um, it was obviously going to lower your odds a little bit of six of sixes just because the bottom of the field was a little bit shaky. But I think that, that FedEx St. Jude um, is one of the more fun events to play, not only for DFS, but uh, to also bet because all the withdrawals during the course of the week uh, thinned out the field a little bit and it allowed it condensed ownership in big spots as well so there were a lot of ways you could like fade really chalky guys i know uh, colin was actively doing that on twitter with uh with with the dfs golf community but you also got incredible like t20 odds on guys because the odds weren't kind of adjusting fast enough for the quality of the field drops so that tournament in the future is going to be a little bit of a staple for me uh, from a dfs and the gambling perspective All right, let's get into the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills on Long Island. Colin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the course that we're going to see this week? Yeah, I mean, we definitely don't go quite as heavy into the the course fit stuff usually as some other uh, content providers or podcasts do. But 
Uh, this is the original U.S. Lynx course. It's definitely evolved and been renovated a lot over time, but it's still kind of one of the first Lynx layouts that we've seen in the U.S. And um, I, a lot of professional golfers think it's the the best kind of host that the U.S. Open has in its rotation. Uh, it's been lengthened, so par 70 stretching nearly 7,500 yards long. The fairways in some spots are going to be as wide as 40 yards. So it's actually, you know, the fairways aren't aren't tight, but uh, if you get out of them, you're going to be in, you know, five-inch rough. And then if you get really far out of them, you're going to be in some tall fescue. One of the things that I was noticing the most is that the course has almost no tree protection. It's very exposed to wind, which, especially on Long Island, can can be frequent and can change often. And so that fits sort of the links he's set up. Um, we'll be posting a link to Windfinder. There's actually a Shinnecock Hills wind tower, which is great. Almost never get one right at the course. And early, it looks like there could be a very favorable draw for one of the tee time splits. And so all of that stuff can change in a second, but it'll be an interesting week for weather. Um, and then the greens are going to be really hard to hit. Uh, a lot of stuff is going to kind of come down to length and long iron play just because of how the course is set up. Yeah, and if you look at the course history, Data Golf Who Powers Our Projections as a cool course history thing. Now, their course history for this week, since the U.S. Open obviously is on uh, rotation, is for the event history, not for the specific course history. But uh, you do get the guys that have played the best in U.S. Opens in terms of their strokes gained per round uh, index. So uh, anything that jumps out to you there, Colin? Um. I think it's the right way to look at it is maybe thinking about the U.S. Open just because they do the course has changed, but they do try to set them up somewhat similarly. I know last year's played a little bit easier than uh, maybe some of the events in the past. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything that jumped out specifically. I think a lot of the names that we were looking at um, are, are guys you would expect in a lot of places, the Matt Kuchers of the world, Brooks Kepka. Uh, I think maybe one of the things that jumped out to me was that Steve Stricker was still on this list. I know we love Stricker, and and it's kind of funny, but I didn't expect to see him be being on sort of the U.S. Open course history list as one of the guys with a higher index over a 24-round sample. And I, I think, if anything, it kind of dispels the uh, maybe any narratives that guys who are really good all-around golfers but don't have specific skill sets can't compete here because – I think that as long as they're uh, well-rounded like a Kucher or Stricker is, that uh, they, they can still kind of flirt with the, the leaderboard. Maybe not, not winning upside necessarily from Stricker, but, you know, make the cut, play the weekends, find their way maybe inside the top 20 if they're putting really well. Yeah, because we're obsessed with Stricker, it seems, like week in and week out. And that was the first thing that jumped out to me, too, because I had some hesitation, because you'll see in our projections, if you use them, that he rates pretty well, both in the finished probability model and the fantasy model was, you know, I'm going to dial that back because the length of this course. And then I go and I see that and I go, oh, maybe maybe I won't dial it back as much as I thought. But uh, he really isn't the type of guy that you're, you're thinking of in terms of course fit. Uh, you want someone that has you know you know the distance of this course is really gargantuan when you think about a par 70 course that's 7500 yards long so you want someone that's got a bit of length um and this this we're talking about like the ideal fit and again you don't have to have that as we've seen Stricker have some success but you want length off the tee uh the fairways as you said they're wide so that helps the the bombers but you get off them it, it's difficult and you do worry about the guys that can put up big numbers so uh, I know sometimes we talk about John Rahm's mentality and how he can get frustrated on a difficult course you know you've got someone like Phil Mickelson who can go a bit wayward and you know put up some big numbers so Drew do you have any takeaways as far as course fit that you're thinking about this week or are you mostly uh, just focused on ownership and golfer skill I think I've gone through two uh, separate thought processes when thinking about course fit. The first was when you see 7,500 yards and par 70, you think, holy cow, that is a really long course, and I'm going to need guys with length. But then the second is when you start to see all the, and you'll see this throughout the course of the week, all the Instagram posts or the Twitter posts from the golfers with like dropping a ball in the rough and then dropping a ball you know, 10 yards left of that in the fescue, and you just can't find it. And that immediately makes me think, oh, boy. I really want guys who can hit fairways as well. And so the, I guess the combination for me there would be 
the guys who are not very long and aren't particularly accurate off the tee, guys like, you know, Brant Snedeker, maybe Matthew Fitzpatrick, Russell Henley, those types of guys who get so much of their value from like around the green work and putting, those are the kind of guys that I'm less likely to play. And guys who might not be super long off the tee, but hit a ton of fairways, like a guy like Francesco Molinari, I might still be in on, even though he's not necessarily a bomber, uh, because I think there's going to be such an advantage to keeping the ball in the fairways in general. Yeah, and I think that... Oh, go ahead, Colin. Oh, I was just going to say, I think the other thing that kind of fits that, I was listening, well, it's one of the good things about the majors is you get more coverage, so you can get some qualitative data and qualitative takes. And I was listening to Phil Mickelson's press conference earlier, and he was just stressing that all areas of your game are going to be tested this week. It's not a week where one skill set's going to be able to carry somebody to the top or... And I think that is a very interesting way. I was looking kind of a level deeper, and there are only 20 guys in the field that actually gain strokes in each of the four areas that strokes gained is measured. And there are about 30 guys that gain strokes in all three TD Green metrics. And so those are maybe tiebreaker type things that I'm thinking about right now, pretty early in the week, early in the process. But um, I think trying to find guys with balanced games that have the upside in each of those areas to carry them if one area is struggling is a good way to think about things. All right, let's do a betting segment before we get into DFS since it's going to be a fun week to bet the tournament in addition to playing some fantasy golf. And uh, last week was a pretty good week. You know, one of the things that we've been doing with our little fun that the three of us have together, you know, not anything that we're taking too seriously, but uh, trying to make some money with is we've been hitting some long shot T20 bets. You know, depending on the book that you have, sometimes they're really pumping up the numbers on the high-end golfers, the guys with a higher probability. So if you're willing to spread out on multiple long shots, you can get some really good odds. And a couple of the guys, Colin, that you wrote up in our betting blog were Stuart Sink and JJ Poston, who both hit top 20s at plus 800 each. So that gave us a strong ROI week, some good head-to-head stuff. I know a gay over Thornberry was a head-to-head bet that our tools on dailyroto.com identified as a really strong expected value bet and we do have some cool tools a head-to-head betting tool where you basically can pick the two golfers for the tournament for the week or if it's just a round bet you can do that as well and you can enter in you know the juice the odds that you're getting and it'll tell you you know is that a positive expected value bet or a negative expected value bet so that's really cool uh an early look at some guys this week colin uh who do you see as good bets yeah i think right now it um obviously it's late in the afternoon on Monday when we're recording this. And so lines can move pretty quickly. Uh, one of the things that we, we're finding is most weeks that we're betting guys who are a little bit longer shots to finish inside the top 20, uh, maybe 10 to 20% probabilities to do so, but get decent returns on those payouts when it happens, which is what we had with uh, Sink and Poston last week. And um, Stricker, Bill Haas, and Charles Howell III were a couple of the names that might think of, we might think of as uh, when they're playing their best as kind of steady golfers who can avoid the big numbers and they're available right now at some decent prices plus 1015 plus 1600 respectively on those guys uh, so I, I thought that was pretty interesting and then a lot of times we don't see any outright betting values uh, just because the rake on outrights is so high but this week there was a little bit of value in the data golf model for some outrights and there were actually names that didn't want to make you throw up. So that was nice, too. <laughs> Hendrik Stenson, Patrick Cantlay, Paul Casey, Emiliano Grillo were all number, are all guys that uh, passed the sniff test and the eye test. I would like to root for them, and they have decent expected values. So a couple of decent outrights this week. Yeah, Henrik Stenson at 30-1. to 1. We've actually got him with the third best to win odds, which is a little bit surprising. And the Data Golf guys did a really cool article on golfers that play well in tough conditions on courses that are hardest relative to par on the PGA Tour and U.S. Opens. And I know we talked about last year, it played a little bit easier than usual, but usually these are tough courses. And Stenson over time uh, was, I think, in the top five in terms of guys that had the most strokes gained relative to field when you just isolated out really difficult courses. So that's an interesting angle to look at where someone like Mickelson, who mentioned that he can put up a big number he was on the other side of the ledger as a guy that struggles quite a bit on uh, hard courses and it's kind of up to you how much you want to weigh that how much you think it matters but the sample size on that stuff was pretty decent uh, before we get into DraftKings, let's look at FanDuel because a lot of times we isolate only DraftKings, but there are some nice contests on FanDuel this week 
the one downside of the majors with tournaments is they're so large that you kind of need the nuts to win. So FanDuel's got some smaller contests that have some big payouts, but the tournaments aren't so large that you feel like you have to hit the nuts. I mean, they've got a $33, $3,500 man with a 100 k total prize pool, 15 k to first and some other contests. I do think you need to dig on FanDuel for the ones with the payout structures. I prefer payout structures a little bit flatter. I know they've got a 555 that I was excited to enter, but I saw 100k to first and then 30k to second, and that turned me off a little bit. I like to see that a little bit flatter up top, but uh, it should be a, a pretty fun week uh, on FanDuel. Uh, Drew, looking at some of the, the price tags and who's overpriced, underpriced specifically on FanDuel, uh, what are you seeing at first glance? Yeah, I think some of the guys that stand out as cheap on DraftKings are not so cheap on FanDuel. So a guy like, you know, Matt Kuchar, who's in the mid-sevens on DraftKings, is up, you know, over 10-5 on FanDuel. Uh, Charles Howell III, who's in the mid-sixes on DraftKings, is about 9,500 or so on FanDuel. Uh, Webb Simpson, who's in the mid-sevens like Kuchar on DraftKings, is priced similarly to Kuchar uh, on FanDuel um, in, in that 10-5 plus range. Whereas you look at, like, underpriced guys you've got rory as the sixth highest priced uh up top on fanduel compared to the second highest priced on dk so a little bit more value there on rory and then a guy like lucas glover is near the dead minimum um on fanduel and i know he was uh he was one of the stronger values a few weeks back as well he just seems to hover in like that sub 8000 range that really helps you unlock lineups in general because of kind of the wide uh, salary band with the with FanDuel pricing. So I think uh, Glover's a really good value on FanDuel, probably not somebody I'd play a lot on DraftKings. Uh, Molinari's also got a better price on FanDuel. He's finally like priced appropriately on DraftKings, I would say. Um, he's now priced around like Webb Simpson and Matt Kuchar and guys that we have him as like a long-term skill-based form is somewhat similar to uh, where consistently in the past he was priced like a thousand dollars less than those guys. Um, so a couple, a couple uh, great finishes on the Euro tour apparently has DraftKings pricing algorithm uh, onto, onto Molinari now. Moly, my boy, we still like him at 7,600 on DK, but yeah, better relative price tag on FanDuel for sure. Colin, before we jump over to DraftKings and spend the bulk of the show there, uh, do you have any notes on FanDuel, whether it's specific players you like over there because of the pricing or just tournament notes of like what you think is a good contest to enter? Yeah, I think the uh, the mid-stake stuff is probably the biggest reason to play there just because so much attention on DraftKings goes to the millionaire maker. So um, on FanDuel, you have events that are in the same budget, but you're a little bit more likely to win. So I know you mentioned a couple of those. They got a $2,500 single entry that is a good field size with 10% of the prize pool to first for $1,500. Bucks. So 20, $25, not $2,500, Colin. That's not really the mid-range of price. $25 single entry. $25. Uh, so Monday morning detail, misplaced decimal. Yeah. It's a good week to mix in FanDuel, and you can kind of get some exposure to the guys that you might want to on DK, but they're priced a little bit more efficiently. So um, I'm definitely planning to mix them into the rotation this week. And I think also, you know, we talked about a lot of our content ends up going that direction. A lot of other people's does too. And so I think for sharper players who are less um, kind of reliant and or people who are using projections and websites that offer both like we do, um, I think a lot of times the FanDuel content gets undercovered and some of the DK ownership leaks over to FanDuel, even though it's not an efficient uh, way to do it. All right, but now time to get into the DraftKings conversation. All sorts of tournaments over there. Uh, there's some... The fun part about the majors is you can play those tournaments where, you know, maybe you have to hit the nuts, but, you know, like the Millie Maker, where you've got this huge grand prize. But you can also play some, you know, three max type tournaments. You know, the 153 max tournament I like to use. That's a 30K prize pool with a three entry max of pretty flat, you know, 30K to first, 20K to second, 10K to third. So it's spread out a decent bit up there. I mean, there's a lot of fun contests. There's some MME in you know, the lower stakes, there's some MME in the, in the mid stakes, uh, single entry in the high stakes. I know that between the three of us will be in a lot of these contests and there's some different strategy strategies to have in the different contests, which we'll get into. But let's first just look at the 
individual players by the pricing tiers and in the 10k plus tier of course we've got dj up top as the most expensive golfer here we also project him to be the highest owned of the group and guys it's kind of frustrating that he won last week i don't know how you guys feel about it i feel like he wouldn't be as chalky if he had just played like a ho-hum tournament last week you know even if it was a t20 but he goes out dominates wins fairly easily uh, someone I'm still going to use because our finish probability models have him as clearly the best golfer. You know, even with all these elite names, we have a clear separation between DJ and then about five to ten guys that we honestly have pretty closely. So, uh, Colin, who's your favorite play from this tier? Is it still DJ, even with the ownership? And uh, if you were playing cash games, would you even build with anyone from this 10K plus tier? Yeah, it's a good question i mean i'm not disappointed that he did well last week he was very profitable well, well, we, so. made, we made money on it i mean i understand why you're disappointed but it worked all right for i me. missed out it was a double yeah. whammy for me okay so I, I i'm not sure on tournaments um i think in general the u.s open is going to be interesting uh, obviously the cut to t60 or maybe not obviously but if you're not aware the cut is to t60 in ties so the six of six odds will be a little bit lower than your average week and also because the scoring environment is so hard, U.S. Opens in general have a very hard DraftKings scoring environment. But then you take in, you know, take away two par fives because it's a par 70. And one of them is like 620 plus yards that Phil was talking about being a par hole. And I think the place points are going to matter a ton. So I do think it, it could, I haven't played around with the roster build, but it could make sense to play DJ and cash in that scoring format, knowing your opponents aren't going to get a lot of guys six to six through the cut. If they do, it's not going to be that beneficial, and you really need place points. And so I definitely think that DJ is the top play of this group. Definitely think that DJ is going to be the highest-owned play of this group, and therefore I think it's going to come down to some decision-making tournaments. Um, it seems like the ownership should be fairly efficient, meaning the guys that I think we like the best are probably going to carry you know, the ownership and the corresponding ranks. And so um, I think in this range you can kind of uh, – wait until Wednesday to make your decision just based on, you know, the ownership. And I don't think you're getting anyone that's either egregiously priced or going to be egregiously owned. Yeah. And my initial look from a cash game perspective was even with the emphasis on place points, I think you can get away from this top tier just because as you'll see, there's a few underpriced guys in that like eight to 10 K tier that I, I really like the balance build, even though, as you said, like six to six isn't as important. It's more important to get those high end finish points. With that said, for GPPs, it's really interesting because while you get a little bit of loose pricing on some of these guys. Overall, I feel like the pricing is tighter than it was for the Masters. And sometimes the Majors, we get super loose pricing. I don't feel like uh, it's quite to that extent where there were just a bunch of insane combinations you could make in the 8K range. I feel like there's a few guys I like for cash games, but when you want to start expanding beyond that, it's different. And you, if you get a 6-6 team, even in a contest like the Millie Maker, I think we've seen a guy outside the top 30 beyond the million maker winning roster. So um, there might even be routes where you're taking a couple guys up top. And, and if you get a one, two finish, as long as you get, you're going to need six to six to win the million maker, but you don't necessarily need this crazy high end upside. Like you do at the masters where it feels like you need six guys in the top 10. Um, so that's the way I'm looking at it. Right now, the best, you know, quote unquote leverage play looks to be Ricky Fowler, who's not getting a lot of pub. He's at this price tag at 10-2. That's stuck in no man's land a little bit where you've got the 9K guys like Rom, Rose, Tiger, who we'll get into in a second below him. And then just above him, you've got Day, Speed, Thomas. So Drew, if the ownership projections hold and it looks like Fowler is going to be the lowest owner of this top group, are you biting in tournaments? I'm, I don't look at leverage as much up top. Um, I think pricing is generally pretty efficient and I think ownership is generally pretty efficient. So I will just, when I'm like making my builds, I will just like let projections kind of guide and spread a little bit of the risk up top. And usually what I'll do is I'll knock off, you know, like one or two guys from the top that'll be like, okay, you know, projections aren't funneling me in this direction. I'll probably just have a zero weight there. 
Um, so I, while Fowler might be the lower owned and slightly more appealing from a le leverage perspective, I'm not necessarily going to load up on him just for that. I'm more likely to play leverage down the pricing spectrum. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention, because you kind of talked about this, the difference between this event and the Masters, I think there's a couple coming through. One, I think the pricing is a little bit tighter. Two, I think the guys who have been priced up near the top have been playing better than they were coming into the Masters. And a lot of the guys that were in the mid-tier that were priced that way were the ones that were playing the best, whereas those guys that haven't had you know great runs of late, like Sergio Garcia, um, Hideki Matsuyama, those guys have kind of fallen off of late. Um, and so I feel like it's it brings this interesting conundrum in place, whereas the Masters has like a reasonable scoring environment, but not a low one. The U.S. Open, we know, is going to be such a tough scoring environment to get to Collins' point that place points are going to matter so much. I think it's an interesting pull and push discussion between what what emphasis matters most in terms of cash games, either the balance builds or the uh, the top end builds, because I still think some of the guys who are really screaming values you can get with one of the top end stars. You just can't get multiple multiple uh, ones of them. So I'm intrigued. I'm leaning towards the balance build slightly, um, but I'm I'm. I'm more torn on it than I was in the Masters from a cash game perspective. Yeah. All right. Before we move on, let's talk about Jordan Spieth a bit because he's in at this 10-8 range and someone that I initially thought would be low owned coming into it. Our initial ownership projections do have him the second lowest owned of this tier behind Ricky Fowler. And it, it's just kind of crazy the the putting woes that he's had for someone that we think of as such a great putter. And it's not just narrative based. If you look at the data golf 40 round rolling averages uh, in terms of adjusted strokes gained, and you can break it down by different segments of the game, but putting speeds at about the worst point of his entire career in terms of putting. So it really is that bad. And then at the Memorial tournament, we saw the T to green game really fall apart. So Colin, do you have any uh, hot takes one way or the other on speed heading into this week? Um, no, Phil touted that Spieth is going to improve his putting, that he's too good of a putter not to. So I'll, I'll go with Phil there. It's not my hot take. Um, one of the things I was looking at is Spieth's one of the, the guys that doesn't gain strokes in all four areas. That's priced above 10K. Most of the guys do. Jason Day is the other guy who doesn't, who loses strokes on approach. So Spieth and Day are the two guys who kind of lose strokes in one bucket out of the group up top. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But feels like it'll, it'll eventually click with speed. It could happen overnight. It could happen over the course of a month. Uh, if he's 15% and I'm building multiple lineups, I'm going to have some speed. Not sure if I have the, the stones to pull the trigger on him in a uh, single entry. The Yeah, you mentioned the guys that are gaining strokes in all four areas versus not. It reminds me a little bit of Nicholas Taleb conversation around like anti-fragility, fragility, robustness, and... Uh, so a little bit of fragility there with Spieth and Day and the other guys have a more of a robust game where they can uh, be successful in a variety of ways depending on how the course plays and just what's working well for them on that particular week. But when we jump into this 9 to 10K range, uh, I really like this range as part of the reason why I like going a more balanced build and not actually going above 10K in cash games in my initial look and it starts with the guy that's highest in this range that's justin rose at 9900 and i think for tournaments he's going to be mega chalk basically any way you break down rose in terms of strokes gain looking at different metrics different time frames he's basically popping across the board and we have him uh third in terms of adjusted strokes gained when you wait together the long-term and the short-term averages. Uh, his two-year ranks actually 10th, which is still pretty good, but his one-year ranks fifth, six-month rank is fourth, two-month rank is third. So talk about excellent form for Rose, and he's not priced up within the top five golfers. So he's the guy that I'm looking to most in this tier. I like starting my build with him in cash games. Um, tournaments, the guy I like most is John Rahm. And I think we're all on Team Rahm. Uh, it seems like we like him quite a bit. I know that uh, Tim Anderson, the Andercust on the Pat Mayo show, uh, he tweeted out that there's no way Rahm uh, is live to win this thing. So, Drew, you got to be feeling pretty good about Rahm after he's, you know, reverse Andercust. Yeah, the reverse Andercust is, is, a, is a great way to start the week for Rahm, as is uh, early lower ownership trends. It's interesting to see how Rom is discussed because so many people talk about, you know, his temperament and his attitude and how that impacts him. 
And ultimately, like, it doesn't really flow through in the results because the dude has, like, such a ridiculously high top 20 percentage, such a ridiculously high top 10 percentage. Um, so I will let that narrative drive down ownership if that's what's going to be the case. I don't see how Rom's behavior on the course is much different than Jordan Spieth's. But Spieth, like, has a longer history of actually, like, grinding out the wins. So he gets, like, the mental credit for that, whereas Rom doesn't. Um, so I'll, I'll take the, the ownership discount. Um, the nice thing about Rom is that he's priced in between Rose and Tiger, who Rose just on his, his performance. I mean, he has been unbelievably consistent uh, over the last you know 12 calendar months or, or whatnot, just grinding out consistently top 10s, top 20s, high-end finishes as well. And between Tiger Woods, who I think will have some public draw from him. And also Tiger's been playing really great. Um, I think that will naturally keep Rom's ownership a little bit in check. Um, even if, you know, people like us who are posting content are thinking he'll be an interesting tournament pivot, I still think the general public won't choose Rom over Justin Rose or Tiger Woods, given the way uh, that they've been playing or their name value. So I still think there's a lot of good things uh, for Rom, even if the DFS community starts to get behind him a little bit. So Colin, with Tiger, we've seen a great short game out of him. He's His approach game uh, Data Golf did another, they've been doing some really good content on their Twitter feed. They showed his strokes gained in different areas and his approach game isn't, you know, quite where it was during his prime, but it's, it's pretty good. The issue has been his off the tee game is pretty neutral right now. And while, you know, it's a long course, uh, he's going to have to play driver. It's, but we've got the wide fairways. How are you seeing the off the tee game? Or do you think like trying to look into that? is you know micromanaging too much because he's gonna have to be on the point off the tee because if he gets in the fescue you know whoever gets in the fescue you know at that point you're in trouble no matter who you are yeah i mean i think the 40 yard wide fairways help a little bit with that um depends how much run he can get on some of the holes if he wants to hit three wood or or a stinger or whatever um i guess you said he's neutral off the tee and that's definitely true that's relative to the average tour pro though so most of these guys up top are gaining at least half of a stroke off the tee. And so neutral off the tee for a guy at this price is pretty negative. Um, and I, I think that's – you probably don't have to overthink the course fit, though. Just think about the overall skill set, and it seems like the price is fair. Uh, you mentioned Rose, probably $1,000 underpriced. Um, Rom, the fantasy model, likes a lot just because of his DK scoring. The probability model likes him too, but – uh, not quite as strong as the fantasy model. And then I think Brooks Kepka is an interesting conversation because last week he was almost the same price as DJ and he was almost the same ownership as DJ. And uh, this week he's going to be $2,000 cheaper. He's going to be, you know, lower owned. And uh, I think he, he makes for a good play this week. He definitely seems like he's kind of in a fair pricing range and maybe the finish that he had last week, not that it was a bad finish by any means, but because he didn't, uh, contend uh, the ownership won't be quite as heavy. So I like I like Kepka. Uh, there are only four guys in this range. They're all in play. We talk about it a lot with the guys who are kind of eighty five hundred dollars and above. They all can win on a given week, and so you're playing with some some decently small edges. Yeah, yeah Kepka last we, year's last year's winner, Kepka. He's gained strokes off the tee in three consecutive tournaments. So uh, good to see him in form after that injury. Uh, Drew, what do you got on Brooks? It was just funny that we, when pricing first came out, it came out on like Thursday of the St. Jude, and we were we were kind of batting around uh, names and Slack, and I was like, I really like this Brooks price. I think I'm gonna have a lot of Kepka. And as I said that, he kept going low on Thursday's opening round, and I was like, oh my god, his ownership's going up with every birdie. This is getting worse and worse and worse. And then he faded the rest of the tournament a little bit. Uh, Kepka did do an interview like a week or two back. Um, where he said he feels like he's really, really close. Like he feels exactly, his game is exactly where it was heading into the U.S. Open last year, and he just hasn't put four rounds together where it all kind of clicks like he did last year at the U.S. Open. Um, it's something that I like to hear. It's like an, another little uh, notch on, on the confidence uh, uh, spectrum for me. So I'm going to be in on Brooks for sure this week as well. All right, the 8 to 9K range, uh, the the projected highest owned player here is Casey, but he looks like one of the best options. You've also got Henrik Stenson in here. Casey at 8,000, Stenson at 8,800. Uh, this, this is my case. My pitch for the balance building cash games is, uh, 
the the Rose Stenson Casey lineup and then figuring out where you go f- from it from there. Uh, but the, these guys, uh, Stenson, we have as the top five overall skill player in this field. I mentioned that he has had success on difficult courses historically, and then Casey at AK below the average cost for roster spot. It's just tough to kind of get your mind, you know, wrapped around this price tag when he's just played pretty well. I know at the Masters he had. Like a little bit of a hit thing went on and missed the cut the week after. But uh, overall with Casey, we've got him in his two-year strokes gain metric. You know, we have him as the fourth best golfer in the field. Uh, so, yeah, the recent form when you, you factor in the Masters and um, some of the other stuff, it's not as strong. And I don't think actually the Masters might not be in that because they have their own shot link data. Um, but you know, his two month strokes gain is just 23rd, but it's not like egregious and an 8k price tag looks great. So, uh, do you guys have any concerns with casing cash games? And if he is going to be mega chalk in single tournaments, would you look to start to deviate off of Casey and pivot, or would you use him and just try and differentiate elsewhere? I'll start with Colin. I think he's underpriced. Same thing as Rose, kind of a thousand dollars. You wouldn't blink twice if he was nine k, uh, but but he's not. And I, I think that for cash games, you gotta slide him in there. He would be the guy that you can fit if you do pay up or to, for like DJ, for example, if you want the security of his place points. He would also fit the balance bills that you like. So Casey and Cash seems like really good play. No concerns. Um, yeah, yeah a bad result at RBC Heritage, but he came back with good results at his two events after that. Uh, just a top 20 machine, which is something that's nice. And the ball striking is obviously always going to be there for Casey as well. So um, no concerns at all in cash. I don't, I'm trying to figure out, and I won't know until close to lock, how out of control his ownership is going to get. Um, there are some other people who are being talked up just because Tommy Fleetwood's right nearby and people like to play him. Um, but it seems like Casey's ownership, if it's near 20%, I still think he's in play and still offers maybe better leverage than trying to force in Fleetwood, Bubba, or Bryson. Um, but if he gets much higher than that, then I think that scale starts to tip the other way. Uh, same thing with Stenson. He's going to carry a, a modest fair bit of ownership as well, but we have him as so severely underpriced that I think it still keeps him in the tournament conversation, especially for GPPs that aren't, aren't quite as top-heavy. And with Casey, he's a guy that it seems like as you move up in stakes, the ownership rises yeah. and rises on him. So uh, that's something to consider if you're playing a little bit higher stakes, smaller field uh, where the ownerships can condense. And, you know, maybe you'd be more likely to pivot there, whereas in a lower stakes MME type thing, uh, beat the field on what is just objectively a really good play. Drew, uh, this is a really interesting range. I feel like the ownership looks like it's going to be pretty efficient at first glance uh, with the two guys we mentioned as Maggie Chalk. But then you you got someone like Bubba who looks like he's going to be low. And it just, it's crazy how recency bias affects things and maybe appropriately so in some regards, but he was mega chalk in the masters at a higher price tag in a looser pricing field uh, and more pivots around him. And this week, you know, nobody is talking about him on a, a really long course. So, that one, I'm not super interested in Bubba. I am interested the macro concepts behind that. Um, but Hideki is the guy that I want to get your thoughts on at $8,900 who just hasn't played that great since the injury. It seems like lately he's been a little bit better. Um, and he's someone I just always like to mash. So if you have feelings on Bubba, Hideki, or just other like leverage spots in this range. Well, I think it's funny. You, the, everything you said about Bubba is exactly true of another player in this range that you didn't even mention, in Sergio Garcia. And uh, now Gar- yeah. Garcia's like form has been so bad. Um, he's missed three of his last four cuts, and the one he made, he finished 70th. I mean, it's just been dreadful, and some of those were in bad fields too. But he's going to be like 5% owned. Um, and I am torn because he's got enough distance and he hits long irons well and he's an approach guy. But man, the form has been so bad this year. And he and Bubba both were like darlings at the Masters. They carried pretty decent ownership associated with them and they've disappointed since then. And now you're getting them at similar price tags with a fraction of the ownership. So for large field GPPs, especially for the Millie Maker, I'm interested because that's the kind of guy that if, if, if the things click again for them, 
um, and it just you just happen to find the right week, you can really leverage yourself up the leaderboard. Hideki specifically, I think, has shown more form than Sergio of late, and he's probably a longer-term, better golfer in terms of the high-end finishes. So Hideki probably makes a little bit more sense as a leverage play, but I think you're going to get a little bit more ownership there, not substantially more. Um, I guess both will be below 10%, but Hideki had that one really hot start two weeks ago and then kind of faded over the weekend. But I thought what was good enough there was the sense that you started to see a little bit of the approach game dominance come back um, with Hideki, at least early in that tournament. I know he had a little bit of a hot putter going as well, which you don't expect from Hideki, but that's really what you want to see. You want to see Hideki with the the, the strokes gained approach kind of coming through strongly because that's when he's yeah. right, he's consistently adding strokes on the approaches. Yeah, an interesting note with Sergio, of the top 30 golfers we have ranked in this field, all of them over the past two months are at least top 50 in adjusted strokes gained. Sergio, the exception, 111th over 26 rounds over the last two months. But let's move on to the sub-8K range. Uh, make sure we, we cover all the ranges here. And, uh, my favorite play in the seven to eight K range, I think you guys know Tony Finau, uh, I, someone that I'm really big on. I just think his upside as an all around golfer is really growing, but he's got the distance both off the tee in terms of long iron play to really succeed at a course like this. And I was hopeful, you know, when I saw the initial ownership projections, they weren't too high on him, just a little bit over 10%. And I think that's because you do have a lot of potential pivots here. You know, Webb Simpson 7,700 has been playing well. Matt Kuchar always seems to carry a ton of ownership in this field. Uh, those are probably the three highest owned guys, but uh, with there being three of them similarly priced and uh, with there being still some okay pivots, even if not as chalky over there, hopefully, Colin, none of the ownership gets away too high from the field on any single player. Yeah, I mean, you can sell yourself on that if you want, but I think the real reason is that it's early in the week and, you know, the steam starts to pick up on some of these value guys as the week goes on. So I imagine Finau is going to be one of those guys that keeps, you know, keeps the momentum rolling and sees that ownership tick up and up um, closer to 15%, maybe, you know, 15 to 20 is where I think it'll end up landing. But we'll see. Check back on Wednesday for uh, the final ownership projections and also be doing the show with Pat Mayo tomorrow, just talking kind of ownership and uh, for the U S open and DFS golf and specifically focusing on the millionaire maker, obviously um, in some of the smaller fields that are filled with more PGA regs, the ownerships there can kind of congregate on some of the favorite values. Whereas in the large fields spreads out a little bit. Uh, definitely in general though, I would agree with the sentiment you're expressing, which is that, uh, the 7K range seems to be where the most inefficiencies happen with regards to top 20 probabilities and ownership. I know I had that Twitter uh, back and forth last week with Joel Dahman, and it wasn't that the probabilities that we had on him were terrible, but we had him at like 15% to T20, and there were like a dozen golfers with either the same or slightly better odds than him, and they were all going off at you know 1% to 10% ownership. So. I kind of ran into the Joel Dahman floor game. Uh, I managed to to go 11, 0, and 1 in the head-to-heads. So that was nice for the the Twitter brand. But um, in general, this is a good area to look for leverage, especially in large field tournaments. Drew, uh, who are your favorite plays from this range? Uh, One of our favorites, while we always are on the Steve Stricker brand, we are also always on the Patrick Cantley brand. And Cantley has had good performances of late. He's been, you know, he had that one disappointing miscut where he was uh, chalky and then kind of came back the next week and was in contention, um, ultimately kind of faded down the down the stretch um, and wasn't able to, to bring home a title. But, you know, 7,700 for Cantley, a guy who has distance, a guy who is known as um, a, an elite ball striker. And early on, it doesn't seem like ownership is kind of flowing to him. It's it seems like it's a nice spot for Cantley to maybe get lost a little bit in the shuffle just because Webb Simpson's right there and Webb's had m- probably more prolific high-end finishes this year, especially with the the Players' Championship kind of fresh in everyone's minds. And then Matt Kuchar is right below, and Kuchar's just kind of a cash game staple that has that level of consistency that everybody likes to get into. And then Finau's right below him, who is a little bit of a DFS darling, and right above is the Paul Casey, Tommy Fleetwood. So some of those guys in the high sevens, I think, might get squeezed just on where they're priced as opposed to who they are. And that makes Cantlay kind of an interesting play to me, not only alone on his skill set, but just he might be one of the guys that the ownership kind of sneaks past. And instead of getting, you know, where I think he should be around like 12 to 15%, you might get him at like 
eight to nine percent, which is a little bit of leverage. One of the guys I like most in the low seven Ks is Luke List, who we don't have a very high ownership projection on to begin the week, and someone that was chalk for a while, and he's played phenomenally this year. The T to Green game has really been on point. So in that low seven Ks range, I think he's my favorite play in all formats. I was surprised to see someone like Ian Poulter rate pretty well in our finished probabilities model. Someone that I. If just based on names, I would have had absolutely no interest in. And but then you you couple that with uh, again that study with guys who played good on tough courses, and Poulter's one of them. Uh, so those are some the interesting. Num- the number one guy on the study uh, shots gained relative to baseline, adding about um, a third of a stroke relative to his own baseline on a per round basis. Yeah, which is pretty impressive and goes a long way. So you've got other guys like Shane Lowry in this section. I know Emiliano Grio is consistently one of our favorites, uh, Rafa Cabrera-Bello. So pretty loaded in this low 7Ks range. Colin, as you get to the low 7Ks range, and we'll, we'll include the sub 7K guys. We can finally talk about our boy Stricker. Uh, ben Ahn, who is a late addition, is also just $6,900 in He's one of the, the sub-7K guys that looks the best to me, and I'm hoping with the late addition he doesn't gain too much steam. He might be like a final where he gains more steam as we get to Thursday, but he's got the distance and the TD degree game, I think, to perform pretty well. Um, but as far as the type of player looking for, or not even the type of player you're looking for, but I think you can have expectations of someone like a Stricker and say, okay, does he have winning upside? No. And a lot of times in the Masters, I would just cross those guys off my list. Um, in this tournament, in this setup, it's can he make the cut and does he have you know top 20 upside? Like That's good enough uh, as your fifth, sixth best golfer uh, in a tournament where, yes, finish points up top are really going to matter, but it's going to be difficult to get six to six through. So a cheap guy that lets you maximize the finish points with your high-end golfers, even if they themselves don't have that high-end upside, I think are viable this week. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And Stricker has uh, gained strokes in each of the strokes gained categories. So even though he's not long off the tee, he's been accurate enough that he's still gaining strokes on the field. And he's one of the few guys that is below 7,000 that does check all three of the boxes tee to green. And so that's, I think, an interesting way to try to look at the value ranges um, is some of the guys who, who check it in all the categories. Ian Poulter was another one of those guys actually in all four categories because he is gaining strokes putting. Stroker, we know, is a good putter, so we would expect that to flip eventually. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I'm going to be trying to lean on a little bit. I definitely don't want guys who are short and inaccurate off the tee. And I think there are a bunch of guys that you can kind of cross off the list altogether. Um, who are you crossing off? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like Jim Furyk, you can cross him off. I think like Matt Wallace, cross him off the list. Graham McDowell, I'm going to cross off the list. Brian Gay, cross him off. Dylan Fratelli. I think there's a lot of guys that I think um, can kind of be crossed off who have especially in the like any any three max type format who have less than 15 percent odds to finish inside the top 20 and so that's kind of the threshold that i'm looking for uh because there are a few guys this week that do have at least 15 percent odds to finish inside the top 20 including stricker who you mentioned including lucas glover who has won us open before and is a really strong t to green player and then charles howell the third who again doesn't have winning upside most weeks on tour but he he could um, you know, make the cut, and at 6,700 is the last guy, and on your roster, he might allow you to do some interesting things with your lineup. Yeah, that's a phenomenal price tag. I mean, once you get below 6,700, there just aren't a lot of options that you feel even remotely confident in. There are a couple guys, 6,800, that uh, at varying times over the last year or two, we've been high on, whether it's Gary Woodland or Brendan Steele. It's interesting to see they're kind of fall and Woodland is one of those guys that did not do well in terms of that data golf study on uh, over or underperforming based on course difficulty, but he's got the length. He's been in horrific form though. Um, Drew, can you see going back to him because we've seen the upside from him, even though he hasn't flashed it recently or are there some other guys you like better that you want to mention down here? My interest in him did take a hit when Ben On was introduced into the field at this price level as well, because that's just another name that I'm probably going to throw um, some ownership at. So uh, he's kind of on the periphery of me, whether he makes the cut or not. Maybe the the Oprah sprinkle from the Daily Road of Slack chat where you throw, you know, one to three percent on a guy, because um, he does 
have the distance certainly and he does ha he has flashed high end upside it just hasn't been of late um and then you know if you want to go all the way down to six thousand you've got our old school uh european tour guy dean burmester who we played like at one random euro tour event where he had like ridiculous odds he is actually six thousand i haven't ever considered a golfer at six thousand um, but he's he's there in a in a in a field and, filled with guys right around six thousand that are uh, that are not very good golfers. Yeah, and I I do feel like this is a week where like, you know, maybe you could sneak that if you get the right top guys. Yeah, with the it, it's kind of interesting. But all right, we got a and couple you could minutes put up like a too. negative. You could put up like a negative DK score too. So if you get too frisky with some of these puns, oh, I, the, the amateurs. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're talking like. If you're going for the moon million maker, like that, that's a strategy you might want to try. Certainly not cash games, probably not single entry. Three maxes either. Just saying like, sometimes I just don't even see the upside, like no matter what. Um, but, but this week I do kind of see like, Hey, he makes a cut. You're happy. You could still have even in a huge large field tournament, you could win with that. But, uh, about a minute and a half left. Let's get, let's get the winner from everybody. Uh, Colin, who's it going to be? Yeah, I can't let us go out on the pod with Dean Burmester as the last piece of advice. <laughs> um, I mean, my my answers for who's going to win is like DJ is going to win. He's the chalk. I don't know if he's necessarily oh the best God, at DFS GPP play, but he's he's the winner. He's the favorite, right? That's what you asked for. Drew, uh, give us a non-DJ winner. Justin Thomas. Okay. I like that. I haven't heard much talk with Thomas. I mean, I don't think he's gonna be low on. But it's, I... it's the it's the it's the reverse DJ narrative from last week. Now Thomas is motivated to try to get to number one in the world since DJ took it back after just one week, and he wants that taste of number one in the world. No, that's not why I'm interested in Justin Thomas. I just think <laughs> Justin Thomas has a great all around game, um, and I think he's a, a pretty decent course fit. Mike, I don't want a winner from you. I want to know, are you locking someone in the Millie Maker? The Leone Lock yeah. Button Millie Maker special we need to address. Is it happening? Well, well it's the same question because I'm locking the winner, Drew. So oh, okay. I got you. I'm going to lock Tony Finau in the Millie Maker. I'm not, I'm not max entering the Millie Maker this week. I might go like 30 to 50 entries. But Tony Finau, I called him the winner on Pat Mayo's show, one of my favorite golfers. I think now's the time. Had a great... Uh, round at great tournament at the masters that stupid ankle thing got me off him so i'm getting it all back this week but thanks everyone for tuning in again this is going for the green on the fantasy sports network please make sure to check out dailyroto.com and those promos going on the promo code dad this week for father's day everyone enjoy the u.s open have a great father's day and we'll be back here next week 